Hi, and welcome to Crash Course Catholicism, a podcast about Catholic teaching and why it makes sense. I'm your host, Caitlin West. Hello, and welcome to our third and final episode on the sixth commandment. So in today's episode, we are going to talk about marriage. Marriage is what brings us together today. (laughs) I'm actually super keen to talk about this topic because I feel like it's something that our society really needs to rediscover, right? The beauty and the goodness of marriage. Like we don't appreciate how amazing marriage is these days. I mean, we appreciate romance and dating and weddings. I think we sometimes over appreciate weddings. But often, you know, we treat marriage as though it's a kind of end point rather than the beginning of something. Like, let's think about the order that relationships tend to go in these days. You begin by hooking up, having casual sex, and then you start dating and then you make it official. And after that, then you fall in love and then you move in together and then you get a dog and then maybe you have a kid. And then after all of that is done, then you get married. So it's like marriage is the thing that happens once you've like reached the peak of the mountain after everything else has happened. Now, imagine if two people decided to climb a mountain together and then once they got to the top, they stopped and they turned to each other and they said, okay, now that we've climbed this mountain from now on, I promise to help you climb this mountain. (laughs) I promise to catch you when you fall. I will not abandon you. If a blizzard comes, I'll share my food with you, etc. I mean, those are all beautiful and good things to say to someone But the point at which you need to say them is not once you've reached the pinnacle of the mountain. It's before you start climbing, right? And imagine beginning that mountain climb with someone who hasn't made any of those promises. And you have no idea if they are planning to catch you if you fall. Or, you know, maybe there's this kind of mutual understanding that if a blizzard comes along, then you're free to abandon each other and kind of fend for yourselves. Imagine the likelihood that those two people will reach the peak of the mountain compared with two people who have made the commitment to each other before they have even started climbing. And it's the same with marriage, right? A marriage isn't a celebration of something that has already happened. It's a commitment to begin something that hasn't started yet. Now, you might hear all of this and think, okay, That's all fair enough, but how do you know that this person is the right person to climb a mountain with if you haven't climbed a mountain with them yet, right? Like, what if you start climbing and you've made this commitment and then it turns out that they suck and they have zero core strength, right? Okay, yes, of course, it's not like you just randomly pick a person and say, hey, do you want to climb a mountain with me? And then you just fling yourselves into it with no preparation. No, (laughs) You have to get to know the person first. You have to sit down with them and figure out, first of all, if they actually want to climb the mountain. And then secondly, whether they have the skills to climb a mountain, how prepared they are, whether they're suited to climbing a mountain with you. And that's what dating is, right? Getting to know the person and figuring out if you're compatible, figuring out whether you get along, (laughs) whether you have the same values or not, how prepared you both are for marriage, talking about how many kids you want to have, how you want to raise them, etc. 
So these are all things that you need to know before you go into marriage, because those are the things that will get you through that 60 odd year, you know, mountain climb of marriage. By the way, sex is not one of the things that you need to be focusing on in this pre-marriage discernment phase. I mean, attraction is important. Yes, don't date someone you're not attracted to. But while sex is good and it is important to marriage and it's something that you can work on throughout your marriage, it's not the thing that is going to keep your marriage intact. There are deeper, more important values that are going to get you up that mountain. And that's what you need to be focusing on in that phase. In fact, if you begin by focusing on sex, that can obscure all of those other questions and hide the fact that there might be deeper incompatibilities in the couple. So there's a YouTuber that you've probably heard of. Her name is Emily Wilson. She has some really great videos on the kinds of questions that couples should be asking in that dating slash engagement phase. And I will put those videos in the show notes. But going back to this question, how do you know if this is the right person for you? One thing that we can say is that really, to some extent, you don't know. (laughs) And that's a scary thing, right? I mean, there's a degree of sensible preparation and discernment that you can and should do before marriage. But once you start climbing that mountain, you don't know what's going to happen, right? That person could break both their legs and you have to piggyback them the rest of the way up. Or maybe halfway up the mountain, they get really hangry and really tired and they become a massive downer. And you're thinking like, oh my gosh, this is not the person that I started this journey with. Those things may happen. And in fact, something like that probably will. And this is the terrifying and also incredible, beautiful, wonderful thing about marriage. You marry someone not because you have figured out that they are the perfect person for you who will never make you unhappy and you're never going to struggle and you're never going to suffer. You marry them because you choose them with all of their imperfections, with all of the unknown things that lie ahead in the future. You choose them and you become family. And that is scary, but it is also incredible. I mean, Imagine not only loving someone, but having someone love you like that. Imagine someone saying to you, I choose you for better or worse. Even if in 20 years you become, you know, just like your mother (laughs) or you get sick or you hit menopause and you go crazy, no matter what, I promise that I will be there. I give myself to you for life. And then you make that promise to them in return. You get to love someone that radically. That is incredible. That's true. That's literally unconditional love. And this is what I think every person deep down desires. And it's also what we're made for. This is what we deserve. This is what God is calling us to in marriage, to love each other completely and totally with no take backs. So this is why the church teaches that infidelity or adultery is a serious sin. So adultery refers to having sex with someone who isn't your spouse And it's serious because once you've made that promise to someone and you've confirmed that vow by becoming physically totally united in sex, to go back on that promise, that's a really serious betrayal, both of that person and also of yourself. So point 2381 of the Catechism says that adultery is an injustice. 
He who commits adultery fails in his commitment. He does injury to the sign of the covenant, which the marriage bond is, transgresses the rights of the other spouse and undermines the institution of marriage. Now, in Matthew 5.27, Jesus says, Everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So in other words, adultery doesn't just mean having sex with someone who isn't your spouse. It can also include actively fantasizing about someone who isn't your spouse. And this makes sense when we consider the fact that as human beings, we're integrated, right? Mind, body, soul. So if in my mind, I'm fantasizing about being with someone else, then I'm inwardly consenting to that sin and I am betraying my spouse, even if I'm not physically enacting those fantasies. Now, the Catholic Encyclopedia also makes the point that immodest actions between a married person and another are of the same character of malice as adultery. So in other words, if you're flirting with someone who isn't your spouse or you're engaged in a kind of emotional affair, even if you don't actually have sex with that person, that is another way of being unfaithful to your spouse. Now, with all of these things, we need to remember that we have to have full knowledge and full consent in order to commit a sin. So we have to differentiate here between having, you know, a thought or a temptation randomly pop into our heads unbidden. That is normal. And insofar as it's beyond our control, we are not morally culpable for it, right? It's not a sin. The point at which sin comes into the picture is where I actually make an active, deliberate decision in response to that temptation. So if a thought comes into my head and then I decide to foster that thought and encourage it, or I say yes to that temptation. Aside from adultery, the catechism also talks about divorce as a really serious thing. Now, We've said before that there are situations where spouses might need to separate either temporarily or even permanently because of serious issues in the family, such as you know abuse. And that is OK. There are also situations where the church may grant something called an annulment. Now, an annulment is not a divorce. It's not the church saying this marriage is over. An annulment is the church saying this marriage never occurred in the first place. So basically it means that the vows that the couple made at their wedding were not valid because one or both of the spouses were not actually able to give their consent or they they never actually intended to enter into a lifelong marriage that was open to life. So there's a really good um, article on the Catholic Answers website that summarizes some of the reasons why a marriage might be annulled, and I'll include it in the show notes of this episode. So if someone's marriage is annulled, then they're, of course, free to enter into a valid marriage with someone else. However, if their original marriage is valid, even if the couple has separated, or even if they get a civil or legal divorce, in the eyes of God, they remain married for life. Now, this is not the church being mean and just refusing to allow the couple to divorce. The church cannot divorce a couple who has been validly married. So canon law puts it like this. It says a ratified and consummated marriage cannot be dissolved by any human power or for any reason other than death. So it's like we've said before, right? If you crack an egg into a cake mix and then you mix it all in, 
You can't undo that. So Peter Kraft says that once two people freely create a marriage and become one flesh, this cannot be uncreated, ever. Ending it is simply not a possibility offered to us by objective reality. Divorce is an illusion, a fantasy. And when you try to divide two people who have freely given themselves to each other and become one flesh in a valid marriage, that's like trying to rip one human body in half, right? The result is incredible pain and distress, not just to the couple, but also to any kids that they might share. Now, it's important to say here that there are many people who are in complex family situations that may involve divorce and may even involve remarriage. And people in these situations might hear the church's teachings here and feel like they're being judged or excluded or shut out. So someone might say, you know, well, I have kids with my second spouse and I've only just discovered Catholicism or, you know, I want to come back to my faith. So what do I do? Where do I fit in? Am I just shut out of the church entirely? Well, a couple of things to say here. First of all, if you are someone who is genuinely seeking to live in accordance with the truth of the faith, there will be options for you. Okay, you have not reached a total dead end. You're not just shut out of the church forever. Will these options be easy? Probably not. <laughs> will they take time and involve a degree of effort and difficulty and even suffering? Probably, yes. I mean, Jesus really means it when he says that we all need to take up our cross and follow him. Jesus does not promise us an easy road and the church isn't going to either. And that's really, really hard. So I've known of couples who have been in difficult situations and they've had to go through an annulment process for their first marriage, or they may have made the decision to live as brother and sister in their second marriage because maybe they have kids and they can't separate. Situations like these are really, really difficult and we cannot play that down. But, and this is the second thing, it's really important. You are not alone in that journey. You are not excluded or judged or shut out. If, and this applies to anyone, by the way, not just to a divorced person. If you are in a sexually active relationship that is not a valid marriage, you may not be able to be in full communion with the church. Okay, so you might not be able to receive the Eucharist until the situation is sorted. However, this does not mean that you are excluded from the Christian community entirely, right? In an apostolic exhortation called Amoris Laetitia, Pope Francis says that people who are in these complex situations should know that the church is a mother who welcomes them always, who takes care of them with affection and encourages them along the path of life and the gospel. So as you journey along that difficult path to, to full communion with the church, know that you are welcome, you are loved, you belong. Okay, so that's divorce. Now, a few other things that the church describes as sins against marriage are, first of all, polygamy. So that's kind of an obvious one. I mean, it's a contradiction in terms to try to give yourself wholly and completely to multiple people. There's also incest. So point 2318 says that incest designates intimate relations between relatives or in-laws within a degree that prohibits marriage between them. It corrupts family relationships and marks a regression towards animality. And then 
Thirdly, and, and this is a bit of a sensitive one, point 2389 talks about sexual abuse perpetrated by adults on children or adolescents entrusted to their care. It says the offense is compounded by the scandalous harm done to the physical and moral integrity of the young who will remain scarred by it all their lives and the violation of responsibility for their upbringing. So I don't think I need to add anything there. I think that's pretty obvious. (laughs) Now, point 2363 of the catechism reminds us that the twofold end of marriage is the good of the spouses and the transmission of life. So those are the two pillars of marriage, the good of the spouses and creating new life. And we kind of talked about this in our last episode on sex. So far in this episode, we've mainly focused on things to do with the good of the spouses. So now let's kind of shift our focus slightly and think about the transmission of life. So you might remember that in the last episode, we talked about how if sex is going to be a true act of total self-giving, then it needs to be open to life. So sex means uniting yourself with someone completely without holding anything back, including the possibility of new life, which naturally flows from that union. For this reason, the catechism says that each and every marriage act must remain open per se to the transmission of life. Okay, now the wording in there is really important. Basically, what the catechism is saying is that sex always has to remain open to life. Now, it's not saying that sex necessarily always has to lead to new life. So it's not like a married couple must get pregnant every time they have sex. Okay, that would be ridiculous. You can have sex and not fall pregnant. That's completely fine. However, you need to remain open open to life. So what that means is that you can't actively do anything that will render the sexual act sterile. So that means that you can't actively deliberately intervene to render the sexual act sterile. So this includes using contraception or having a kind of sex that cannot ever lead to new life. So Pope John Paul II says that any action which proposes to render procreation impossible is intrinsically wrong. Now, you might hear that and think, well, hang on, that's ridiculous, right? There are plenty of situations where a couple simply cannot afford to have more kids, you know, maybe for financial reasons or for medical reasons or mental health reasons. They've simply reached their limit. Is the church saying that those people just have to suck it up and just keep having babies? Well, no, of course not. In fact, the catechism in point 2368 says that for just reasons, spouses may wish to space the births of their children. So there are situations where it might be prudent or even necessary to avoid getting pregnant. This actually happened to my parents. My mum had a serious chronic illness when we were little that meant that she and my dad had to avoid having kids for like 12 years until the illness resolved and then they had my amazing sister. So in situations like this, couples can use something that we call natural family planning or NFP to avoid getting pregnant. So NFP just means practicing abstinence at times in your cycle when you're fertile. And my mum always talks about how amazing NFP is. She's like, 
NFP is actually the most empowering, beautiful thing because it means that the couple, both of them, have to learn how to really deeply respect and get to know the woman's body really well. And the Catechism affirms this in point 2370. It says, Methods of birth regulation based on self-observation and the use of infertile periods respect the bodies of the spouses, encourage tenderness between them, and favor the education of an authentic freedom. It's really interesting that use of authentic freedom, because so often we're fed this idea that contraception gives us freedom because we can just have sex whenever we want. But in actual fact, it is the opposite. Contraception teaches us that we can have sex on tap, which encourages us to objectify each other and erodes our self-control and our self-restraint. On the other hand, NFP, I mean, it's difficult because it requires effort and self-control from both spouses, but it's so much more respectful and natural and loving than just using a condom so that you don't get pregnant. Now, if you want to think more about NFP and openness to life, there's a video by Christopher West on YouTube and another one by Father Mike Schmitz, and I'll include both of these in the show notes. You might also want to check out Christopher West's book called Good News About Sex and Marriage. Now, the catechism goes on to say that when it comes to regulating births using NFP, couples should ensure that their desire to avoid pregnancy is not motivated by selfishness, but is in conformity with the generosity appropriate to responsible parenthood. Okay, basically, in summary, what the church is saying here is, don't be selfish. <laughs> okay. Don't limit having kids just because you want to be comfortable and you don't want to make any sacrifices. Pope John Paul II says that decisions about the number of children must not be taken only with a view to adding comfort and preserving a peaceful existence. So the point of NFP isn't just to have a nice, comfy life where you have, you know, your 2.5 kids and everything is neat and easy. Big families involve sacrifice and at times discomfort and it can be hard, right? But they are a good, beautiful thing. Point 2373 of the Catechism says that sacred scripture and the church's traditional practice see in large families a sign of God's blessing and the parents' generosity. Okay, so they're a fantastic thing. Having said that, we also shouldn't go in the opposite direction and get scrupulous or overly worried about not being generous enough. If you have a legitimate reason to avoid pregnancy, it is okay to abstain from sex at times when you are more likely to get pregnant. Basically, we need to balance the call to generosity with the call to be responsible and prudent parents. In Gaudium et Spes, it says that when couples are considering whether or not to have another kid, they should thoughtfully take into account both their own welfare and that of their children, those already born and those which may be foreseen. They will reckon with both the material and the spiritual conditions of the times. Finally, they will consult the interests of the family group, of temporal society and of the church itself. So, in summary, there are many factors to weigh up when it comes to discerning how many kids you should have. It's not just a matter of, you know, everyone needs to have as many kids as they can, otherwise you're being selfish. B, 
big families are a good, beautiful, wonderful thing. And if you can have a big family, that's fantastic. And the church is waving her pom-poms and cheering you on in that. Okay. However, not everyone is in a position where they're able to have a big family. And that does not make you a bad person. Ultimately, it's something that needs to be carefully discerned by the couple in front of God. Now, what about the opposite situation? What about a situation where a couple actually does want to have more children and they're actively trying to have more children, but they're not able to? In that situation, is the couple permitted to do things that will increase their chances of having a child? Well, before we can answer that question, first we need to establish a really important point, which is that children are a gift from God. Point 2378 of the Catechism says... A child is not something that is owed to one, but is a gift. The supreme gift of marriage is a human person. So ultimately, God is God, right? He is the author of life and he's got a plan. And sometimes the hardest thing to do is to say, okay, God, you are in charge and not me, especially when God's plan does not align with our own. So children are a gift and ultimately we're not the ones running the show. Having said that, it's still permissible and even a good thing to try to find ways to increase a couple's fertility within the limits of morality. So point 2375 says that research aimed at reducing human sterility is to be encouraged on the condition that it is placed at the service of the human person, of his inalienable rights and his true and integral good. So in other words, it's a good thing for scientists to try to find ways to reduce infertility, But these solutions cannot come at the expense of the dignity and the rights of the human person, particularly of the child, or at the expense of the moral law. So actions that contravene human dignity and the moral law include anything that separates the creation of new life from sex and treats the embryo as an object rather than a human person. So the catechism gives the examples of donating sperm or ovum, using a surrogate and using IVF as actions that are gravely immoral. And these actions are immoral in part because you're separating the creation of new life from the sexual act. And what that means is that instead of the the life of the child being the natural product and overflow of the love and union between a mother and a father – A child becomes something that we create in a lab and that we're ultimately treating like a thing, right? Like an object or a commodity that we have total power over and that we can buy and sell or that we might, you know, implant in someone else's womb. Or, you know, sometimes we might implant multiple embryos in one woman's womb, knowing that most of them will die. Or if they all survive, then we'll have to abort some of them, right? All of these actions ultimately objectify the child and they undermine its rights and its human dignity. Now, it's important to say here that there are many people who have gone down the path of IVF who are wonderful parents, who adore their children, and they're not getting around actively thinking of their kids as accessories or commodities. They would find that suggestion deeply offensive. Okay, we have to distinguish here between the objective morality of these actions and judging the intentions of people who have gone down this path. Couples who experience infertility often go through genuine deep grief and pain, and this can lead them 
them to do things that they genuinely feel are coming from a place of love and the desire to love and care for a child. However, we have to come back to this idea that children are a gift from God, not something that we have a right to or something that we should try to have total control over. IVF and surrogacy, etc. These are really complex issues that we don't have time to cover exhaustively here. So I'll include some articles in the show notes that go into more details. Also, if you have any other questions about it, send me an email and I'll add it to my list of things that we can go back to after these episodes on the catechism are done. Okay, now here's a fun little bonus question before we wrap up the episode. What is the role of the government when it comes to the regulation of births? Does the state have any right to intervene or to dictate how many kids a couple can have? Well, point 2372 says that the state has a responsibility for its citizens' well-being. For that reason, it is legitimate for it to orient the demography of the population. This can be done by means of objective and respectful information, but certainly not by authoritarian coercive measures. The state may not legitimately usurp the initiative of spouses. So, in other words, governments have a right to provide objective information that might influence how many kids a couple has. However, they do not have the right to dictate how many kids a couple has. Ultimately, the freedom and the responsibility of the couple needs to be respected. Okay, woohoo, we got through it. Ah, the sixth commandment is done. Fantastic. Okay, next episode, we're going to talk about the seventh commandment. Great, good times. Okay, thanks for sticking with me um, and have a fantastic fortnight and I'll talk to you soon. Bye.